You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Hey, everybody. This is Jackie Lewis, and this is a special mini-series of Love Period, in which we're focusing on Black History Month. Of course, you and I know that Black history is American history, but my guests are going to bring special perspectives about what it means to be Black in America in these days. And I hope you enjoy these conversations. Ruby, I miss seeing your face. What? Yes, me too. I miss seeing yours. I've also missed a good singing at Middle. Oh, me miss you too. In person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm missing that too, love. You know, we were meeting for a little while at this church called Calvary, which was great. But then COVID kicked back up again, right? Right. So we're back in the digital spaces. Um, but do you get the worship link? Do you get the Yes, to- I do. I, I listen, but still, there's something wonderful about being here in this music in person. That is a fact. I have to shock And the interaction between the congregation and the pastor and the choir. That's, that's right. really a priceless intimacy. It is. It is. And the, and the spirit that flows, right, Ruby? Right. It's so beautiful. And so Mill has played a major role in just bringing together one of the most democratizing, diverse communities in New York City. And I'm so pleased that whenever we're in New York, we have the opportunity to come to Mill. I'm so glad that you call us a democratized and unifying. Is that the yes, two words? Yes, yes. Democratized and unifying space. Mama, if that's what we're doing, I am serving my Lord. That well, is- you're serving your Lord. You saw the- <laughs> So your wonderful congregation. So your wonderful congregation. Wonderful congregation. Tell me how you're feeling. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm just really doing well. Just trying to deal with the fact that it's very difficult to navigate isolation in a society where we're constantly dealing with segregation in normal times. That's it's right. It intensifies the segregation. That lays at the very heart of the society that we're in. That's and really other true. than that, it's 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 coming. What's coming, Ruby? What's your what's your prediction about what's coming? Well, I, I think that it's really two things are happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. One thing is the evil that's constantly evolving in this society. Yeah. One of the things that I discovered is that. We think when we think about love, we think about how is it that we love other people. But the first question is how is it that we love ourselves so that we extend to other people the love that we feel for ourselves? Mm-hmm. It's hard to love yourself when you follow people who want you to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. It's hard to love yourself when you follow people who, who degrade your humanity and teach you to hate other people. It's hard to love yourself when you're being used by powerful people to carry out an agenda that buttresses their power but disempower you. And so that I think that the critical question that white people must deal with and all of us must deal with in the 21st century is how is it that you can love yourselves, ourselves, so that we might extend that love to others? Because I think that we have been taught to hate and despise ourselves. Yeah. That's right, Ruby. Did you get, did you get, a copy of my book? Did we get that to you? Yes, in your I hands? did. Okay, I'm so glad. When when I wrote that first section um, on love yourself, and it, it seems to me that 
I didn't think that was the controversial part, Ruby, but we haven't raised a culture, period. Whites, blacks, indigenous, Latinx, Asian folks. This culture has not taught us self-love as a value. I think that in many ways, the society that I grew up in in the South, because if we had learned to hate ourselves the way we, the way the official requirements required us to do, then we would have never survived. And so I think that out of the black community in the South, we had a kind of agape growing up. I love everybody, and the Lord's lover. And so we had we had to counter the narrative that we were nobody with the sense that we were somebody and that that meant self-love. And I think many communities who stood on the outside of the gates of power have had to come up with a way of finding themselves worthy and beloved. I love hearing the stories of your childhood community, Ruby. How did your folks, your elders, your village, how did they raise Ruby Nell Sells and your contemporaries to love yourselves? What was the what was the pattern? What was the instruction? What was the feeling of it? Can you talk about it? Yes, a theology and a pedagogy of somebodyness. Mm-hmm. That I might be enslaved, I might be small in, within the state, but I'm somebody not only with God, but with each other and about myself. And so the pedagogy and the theology of somebodyness, I'm a child of God. And being a child of God, I'm essential. And, and no one has the right to limit or the power to limit my ability to be somebody. So I grew up in a society where the, that theology was so powerful, Jackie, that it never, it, it never, the white view of black children as being inferior never penetrated my being mm. because I was surrounded with the, possibility that I could live into my highest capacity and to love myself. And by the time I got to understand that white America did not love me, I had already been formed to defend myself. It was too late because you already loved you. (laughs) I already loved myself. And and that's how it gave rise to a Julian Bond, to a Bernie Johnson Reagan, to a John Lewis to a Joyce Latner, to a Dory Latner, a generation of young folk who were the beneficiaries of a theology and a pedagogy of somebody. And not only did we think that we loved ourselves, but we loved our elders. We thought they were the most powerful people in the world. We never saw them as being traumatized and small. We saw them as powerful. So, Ruby, is it fair to say that the theology and pedagogy of somebodyness was rooted both in your identity as, you know, child of God, but yes. also as child of your mother, your father, the elders? And, yes, yeah. and as child of the, of the community. Yeah. That I, people ask me, who are your people? It meant that I belong to someone more than just my family. I belong to a people. I belong to a an extended family I belong. My name, James Baldwin said nobody knew his name when he came up. I was thinking about everybody knew my name in the black community when I was <laughs> coming up because I was I, I had a context. 
You had a context. I had a context. That's so important. A context. And yes. and the context was both theocentric, God-centered, yes. but also um, really human-centered. Like, you're talking and making me think about a kind of divine human partnership where God was raising you, but your elders were raising you. Is that right, Ruby? Yes, and if I were, no matter how far away I was, she would look at me and say, are you Reverend Sales' daughter? <laughs> because I looked like my father. People knew my father. People knew. We had a context. We had. We were not invisible. We were very visible. And I had. And who I was was not about just Ruby Sales. It was about being Reverend Sales, a, a Willie Mae Sales' daughter. Let me tell you a story real tell quick. Tell us, please. So Cheryl, Nance, and I went to Jimerson, Alabama, which is where I was born and grew up. And we stopped at, we, it's, it, the city had changed, well, it's really a little country town. The town had changed so much, Jackie, hmm. until we didn't know where we were going. So we stopped by this little country store. And this old white woman, who must have been in her 90s, we went and we asked her, did she know where all the sales that used to live? And you know, she said to me, you must be Joe Sales' daughter. Wow. My father left that town 50 years ago. And she, and she knew just you. looked at me <laughs> and she said, you must be Joe Sales' daughter. Wow. How did this that This was a white woman. And this <laughs> really happened. And I had a context with her. Despite segregation, there was a certain kind mm-hmm. of intimacy that she knew my name and she knew my father's name and she knew my grandmother's name. Even in the midst of segregation is what you're saying. Even uh, in the midst of segregation, she knew you. Uh-huh. Black people had a context. Wow. So, Ruby, what has happened? And I, I, I've talked with you about this before, but like, just what happened to, to the project? The project of black somebodyness, let's say, right? What happened to the context of black somebodyness alongside the kind of integration and let's say the history of the last 40, 50 years? Can you describe to us what you think has eroded? Has something eroded, um, shifted? What is that? I I think what happened is that there was a war Hmm. on the strongholds of black culture because after the Southern Freedom Movement, that was a major moment in American history because it was the second time that the white supremacist Confederate culture had been destabilized mm-hmm. and, 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 and it had shifted. And for the second time in American history, you had a democratization in the South that changed the very power relationships economic relationships and social relationships, and no longer were white men at the center of power. And so in response to that, they they set about using every weapon that they had in their arsenal in order to reclaim the power that they had lost. Basically, during the Southern Freedom Movement, they declared war on us. They burned buses. They beat up people. They sick dogs on us. They bombed homes. They followed us in pickup trucks and tried to run us off the road and kill us. They beat us up. They threw us in jail. 
They used every weapon they had in order to destroy because they were fighting for their lives. Mm -hmm. lives. Yes. They were fighting for their way of life. And we were fighting for a different way of life. Yes. And so once the movement was over and the gains were solidified by the 1965 civil rights legislation, mm -hmm. they set about to mobilize white resentment. And also they built think tanks to ask, to answer the fundamental question, how did these Sambo peasants that we mm. thought were Sambos, how did they destroy our empire without firing a shot? What, mm. were the, what were the resources that they drew on so that they engaged in a project of cultural and spiritual genocide by attacking the black family, the black school, the black church, and the black playground? And so that they decimated what had been the fountain in the center of black life and culture, which was the South, which, had, which was a home of descendants of enslaved Africans. Mm -hmm. And that had been the, the, the fertile breadbasket mm. of a black spirituality and a black resilience mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. had not been decimated by, that had not been weakened by migration. Hmm. and northern materialism. And so they... And so that they set about to to separate the young from the old by firing mm -hmm. 38,000 black teachers in the South and, and, and create a situation where young black people would not be in touch with older black folk. Well, by doing that, you decimated the continuum of a black future because there were no cultural carriers who were talking, to, who, were decode, who were decoding the meaning of the journey to young African-American young people youth in the same way that I had cultural carriers, older black people who would decode for me the meaning of the journey and give me the resources that I needed to navigate without feeling alienated and, and without being a broken-winged bird. And, and so integration was a project not designed to, for democratization, but was a project designed for cultural annihilation. Mm. And so we did not want integration. We wanted democratization. We did can, not you want say, to, can you say how they're different, love? I, I really think I feel how, but just tell the yes. listener how that's different. Integration means that you... It's like integration means that you figure out a way of becoming a part of someone else's table and that the table is white. And so how is it that you become an honorary white person? How is it that you uh, hmm. melt yourself into the white world and take on the accoutrements of whiteness? Whereas democratization means that we are all deciding how the table will be set and the table belongs to all of us. We're not trying to diversify a table that's already set. We're trying to engage in a project of creating a new table where every hand has an important role in, in putting a, a, a piece of wood on the table. That is so And so, so what vivid. happened is that we they turned our, our cry for democratization into the project of socialization into whiteness. Yeah, so so rather than the aim being how can we 
I'm going to say sit at the white table, Ruby. More, the aim of the Southern Freedom Movement would have ideally been, the, the aim is, how do we create a new table? Uh, how, how is it that we democratize a table yeah. that, has been, that white people have thought that the country is their country? How might we understand that the country belongs to all of us? All of us. Yeah. And even today we talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity. Those are very deceptive terms. Inclusion into what? Including doesn't mean that you're changing the table. It means that you want to see that a table that's already set. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing as democratization, where democratization requires deep structural and fundamental changes. That is such a more ambitious, more holy, more kingdom of God kind of a project. Yes, it's more beloved. It's a beloved more beloved community. community. It's also yeah. a Pentecostal moment. How is it that we speak different languages, come from different ethnicities? How is it that we build a common table where everybody can speak their own language without becoming me? Ooh, that's right. The Pentecost paradigm. Uh, John yes. and I wrote a book yes. about that. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org slash courage. So Ruby, here we are in this month of black history, looking over the looking over our shoulders like a Sankofa, looking backwards to see what's you know, what's rich, what's what's beautiful, what's instructive, what's, you know, wisdom to take forward into a future. And I'm when you talk about um, when you talk about what's what was lost um, the the sort of decimation aimed at black communities to to disrupt to dismantle destroy the strength and beauty of the southern black community. How do you connect that Ruby to what's happening uh, today? I feel like white whiteness is in death throes once again. Is that is that right? I I feel like what we're experiencing today is what I call. In a, a desperate attempt of the guardians of whiteness to erase people of color, not only from the voting, from, from democracy, from being an American, because when you suppress people's right to vote, basically yeah. you're stripping them of their citizenship, and you're also saying that they are, they are people without a state. So you're, 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 you're saying that they're not legitimate Americans. So you're basically stripping them of their nationhood and peoplehood. Secondly, then when you do, and then in addition to that, you're also stripping them from canonized knowledge in this country by saying that critical race theory cannot be taught. And that's really a buzzword. What they're really saying is that black history and ethnic studies 
cannot be taught because when you read the criteria, the laws that's being created in the different states, it says that you can't talk about racism and you can't talk about sexism and you can't talk about systemic injustice. Well, that means that black folk can't talk about the Southern Freedom Movement. We can't talk about Martin Luther King. We can't talk about enslavement. Mm -hmm. Basically, we are in a period of great social and political genocide. Oh, yes. And that if we are not careful, we will come face to face with physical genocide. Because to start removing books from the library and to start stripping people of their Americanness and their legitimacy as an American, because that's what the steal was about. It is not by accident that the states and the cities where Donald Trump and the Republicans pointed their fingers as having where ballots, where, where votes were being stolen, were predominantly black cities, or at least cities that were brown also. And so that's because they they are the authentic Americans, and for black people to have voted in large, we were taking away their country. They are the they are the ones who who own this country. They are the ones who have the right to participate in democracy. So what I'm saying, Jack, is that we're at a very dangerous juncture mm-hmm. in this country, and I don't think we're paying careful enough attention. Remy, it is so. It is so George Orwell. It was. It is so science fiction. You know, it is so Octavia Butler. But it's real. The way, or the Book of Eli, right? The way the books are being banned. The the way the way um, they are being burned. The way critical race theory is tossed around as some code name for don't teach white children anything. The absolute wholesale erosion of voting rights in 19 states with more to follow. What? I, I know you're alarmed. <laughs> what, what, what does a historian who is a long-distance runner for freedom and justice want to tell young people about this moment, Ruby, and how urgent it is? That we are living in a very dangerous moment. Well, we must begin to weave together the threads that we're seeing and that we don't look at things as disparate moments, that we see the interconnection between the moments and that we start, we must begin to read and think again. We must, young people must begin to read books again. They must ask themselves, what is the meaning of the Trump? What, is there really a Trump base? Hmm. That's not true. There's no Trump base. A Trump base is not driving critical race theory. The Thomas Smith Foundation, which has spent $12.5 million, the Judicial Crisis Network, which has spent another $10 million, all of these corporate and nonprofit right-wing entities, they're the ones who are formulating the issues, and then they're the ones who are triggering white people with those issues by using race and class as triggers to get white people to follow those, to fall in line with those issues. But white people are being manipulated. They are not the, the they are not the instigators or the originators or even vote of even things like voter suppression. Do you know that AT&T, Comcast, State Farm, uh, Boeing Airline Aircraft, do you know that those countries have spent millions of dollars supporting voter suppression 
under the organization called ALEC. And so that I would encourage young folks to get serious about understanding the world that you're living in and stop being parents who repeat things without digging into the reality. Hmm. I mean, really, Jackie, there is no Trump base. We live in a corporate state where we're corporate it was a coalition between corporations, nonprofits, right-wing nonprofits, academicians, and, and, and trade organizations are driving the discourse today. And that's why it seems that politicians, Democrats are, are impotent. And that's why Republicans are no longer legislating. That's why they engage in nullification, interposition, rather than legislate, because they are no longer served. We live in a technocracy where technocrats are even driving issues today. The the whole nature of politics have changed. Ruby, where are the critical conversations happening that you think young people, and I'm thinking young adults right now, and then I'm going to ask you about about teens and kids, but where, where are the critical conversations? Who are the, who are the sources? Where's the best, I'm going to say curriculum, but like where's the best wisdom? You know, where's the best instruction? Well, I think that it is in spaces like this where we're having the conversation. Mm-hmm. But I think that young people, that we need hindsight, insight, and foresight. Mm-hmm. And so the critical conversations must occur between older and young folk. Young people might have, they don't have, they, they need the history, they need the, the hindsight. And when you don't have an intergenerational conversation, that's cultural genocide. So we need to reestablish spaces where younger and older people are talking with each other about the critical issues of the day, where young people are talking to us about what is their reality that they face today. Yeah. Because we don't know their reality, because we're not experiencing it. And we need to tell them about what we know about today and also mm-hmm. what we've experienced. And we need to put that all together and come up with the critical analysis. But it's not just young folk without old folks. And neither, because as an older person, if I don't talk with young people, if I don't understand what's going on with TikTok and the ways in which TikTok is defining what it means to be an influencer which changes our whole understanding mm. of who are influencers in society. If I don't understand the values that's being perpetuated by TikTok that says that you're, you're somebody because you have a large following or you're somebody because uh, you know famous people, rather you're somebody because you're a child of God, all that's important. And I need to know that in order to engage with young people. So you're talking about being culturally... Nimble, dexterous, walking a mile in each other's worldviews, right? Cross-generational conversations that help us to understand where each other's bread is buttered or the values that we have, on, right? Yes, I'm talking about becoming one with each other. Where we can't become each other, but we can become one with each other. And what I'm saying is that we have to really stretch ourselves to understand. Because young folk will often say to me, as a black woman, that you older black people do this. And I'm thinking, don't you understand that I'm not white? Hmm. Don't you understand that as an older black person, I'm experiencing some of the same things that you're experiencing? 
Don't you understand I'm up against a medical industrial complex that does not value old black bodies? Mm-hmm. Don't you understand that I'm a part of a community of black folk who are the poorest in this country? Don't you understand what I've gone through as a black woman? Judy, why would you think that I'm white? Why would you think that a seat of power rests with me in this country? And and why do they think that? Is it because is that, they have because they have their visions have been shaped mm-hmm. by because we allow them to be taught by older white people who shape mm-hmm. their gaze mm-hmm. and they don't see us as being separate and distinct from older white people. They see us as a monolith. Whereas when I was coming up, I knew that my father was not like Mr. O'Neill, the white man. I never mm-hmm. thought that he had. And so I was not against my father. I was working for a world that would enhance my father's place in the world. I didn't think that he was part of a power structure. Yeah. And I don't think that we've taught. How do our children know Jack when they don't know us? No, we haven't had any uh-huh. intimate relationships with them. It's not their fault. They don't know us. Mm-hmm. I work with students at Howard University who tell me that Howard is their first experience of having a black teacher. What? <laughs> That's right. They've gone to all white schools. Wow. So how would they know that? There is, there is. So Ruby, we're in this crazy, you know, we started with how wonderful it is to be together in person, to have music flow, have voices lifted up together in song, to, like, frankly, to hug each other, to look at each other in the eye, to have that dynamic yes. between preacher and preached and, you know, sister and brother and, you know, siblings. It's, it's, we're all missing that so much. And I wonder if, do you, do you have a, a sense that in this technocracy, you know, like, is there a way that this, the Zoom, the social media, the, 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 um, the, you know, meetup places, clubhouse, I'm just, I don't know all that stuff, Ruby, but is there any way that technology can help us connect or do you find it to be just an artifice? I don't think life is about extremes. Mm-hmm. I think that in everything that you can find something good if you look for it and mm-hmm. work for it. But I do think that technology has been used in you can't separate the use of technology from the people who are manipulating it. Mm-hmm. And so if the society, if the guardians are racist, the use of technology is going to be racist. Mm-hmm. If the guardians are anti-human, the technology will dehumanize us. And so if the technology, if it's being run by people who support individualism, technology is going to accelerate individualism. Mm-hmm. And what we see is that we see we see that happening. We see people confusing virtual relationships with real community. Yeah. We see people thinking intimacy is a Facebook friend. We see mm-hmm. all of that happening. We see people being willing to give up their lives and their privacy to a computer without a thought. We 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 absolutely see People texting instead of talking on the telephone. Yeah, that blows my mind. And so, yes, Jackie, I think that you can't separate 
technology from the values of the society and the people who control those values. So AI, technology are right. infested with our white nationalist values. Um, yes, and also mm -hmm. the problem with AI, artificial intelligence, is that it has replaced the value of, in the place of intellectuals who are no longer the producers of knowledge, technocrats mm -hmm. are the producers of knowledge. And the, in addition to that, it has changed the whole significance of books in society and reading. Yeah. And therefore, knowledge, uh, instead of evolving, uh, it has devolved. People are devolving instead of evolving. For example, I bet if you were to ask people to name 10 intellectuals, they couldn't do it in the books that they've written in the last three years. Hmm. That makes me sad to imagine that's true, but it's not that hard to imagine that it's true. If they Google it, right, Google, right, Ruby, they'll Google it. They right, but that's somebody know. else telling you that's something. Right. That's right. That's, 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 that's not you having an intimate relationship with books and knowledge and information. You're relying on someone else to tell you who's, a, who's, who's significant. And, who, and the people that they will name can't be extricated from the values that make them decide who's important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it is February 7th, and I can't believe it's February already. Me either. I really can't. <laughs> but, and I'm thinking about, you know, Black History Month, but I'm really also thinking, Ruby, about Black future. What you are, you are a public intellectual and a mentor to so many of us. What... What do you hope our little people, I mean grammar school age kids now, what do you hope that they're hearing from their parents and their teachers about a black future? What do you want them to think about a black future? That they're important. Mm -hmm. That they're worthy of being saved. Hmm. And that they're worthy of participating in their own salvation. And that they must, and that they come from a people whose great story is that they come from generations of spiritual geniuses who created out of the arid soil of oppression, they created fertile hope zones. And, and, and their work was so significant that it brought down an empire without firing a shot. Mm -hmm. And that I want them to know that. And I want them to stop talking about if they're going to talk about trauma, I want them also to talk about survivor. How is it that we navigate the trauma through, the, through shouting, through all of the modalities that we developed, singing the blues, all of the modalities that we developed that allowed us to, to navigate trauma without becoming broken winged birds to fly, to rise up like eagles and fly above it, to fly through and above the trauma. That was the gift of black, my black ancestors, that they knew how to fly through but also fly above at the same time. And that's what they did. They, they walked right through the trauma, but they also flew above it. And so the young people must realize that we're not traumatized people. 
and that you can't have it, you could not have been traumatized. It developed a generation of young folk who stood up to the most powerful empire in the world with, who had German shepherd dogs, cattle prods, water hoses, bombs, without running away and without being afraid. And if we were so traumatized, then white people wouldn't shoot us 85 times when it's clear that we are dead as the first shot. So the question is, why is it that police shoot black people 85 times when it's <laughs> clear that they're dead as the first shot? They're not trying to kill the bodies, our bodies. They're trying to kill our spirits because it's not our bodies that they fear. They fear our indomitable spirits. And, and everybody around the world knows the power of our spirits except black people ourselves. That's the sad part about it. Why don't everybody we know? Everybody knows it. Why don't we know, sweetie? Why don't we know? Because we look at ourselves through the white gaze mm-hmm. and we, we believe that in order to legitimize our existence, we must talk about the ways in which white people have been at the center of defining our lives how miserable they made our lives, how they've done this, and how they, without ever saying yes, all of those things happen. But the genius of African-American life and culture is that we, out of that we, had our, we made our own lives, as Ralph Ellison would say. That in the midst of all of that, black people made joy. They had children, they built institutions, they loved each other, they had petty jealousies. We did. A, we had a world. We made a world. Yes, we did. It make wasn't a world. just that we were traumatized. And you have to talk about the world that we made. What were the bricks that we used that allowed us to make a world? That allowed us to build a Tuskegee. That allowed us to build a Bernice Johnson Reagan. That allowed us to build a Jackie Lewis. What were the bricks that we used? What were the resources that, that we relied on? Yeah, and we still have those resources. So Yes, and, and contrary to what calling white men masters during enslavement, which is really, I have a problem with that, because it suggests that they are in charge of our destinies and that they are somehow divinely anointed. I don't believe that, that white people are God. I don't believe that they have the final word that they've had final word in our in who we are as a people if that were the case then we would be here today right because we were not, they did not intend for us to live or thrive and that's right and so that's what I would say to young people to not just look to as you're looking at the systemic racism or systemic heterosexism it's also important to understand how you how your community handles that and why you're still standing today in order to look at it. Yeah. So Ruby, I think we started off our conversation today with love in the middle of it, which is not a surprise. Uh, yes. The, this love is a potent, powerful, transformative force uh, that democratizes spaces, that unifies spaces, right? That is the brick maybe that builds, you know, good humans, right? So what's love got to do with this moment? And what do you know for sure about love, Ruby? What do you know for sure about love? I know that love 
gives us the third eye, the ability to see the good in people that they fail to see in themselves Mm -hmm. and to call them to that goodness. That's love. Love it. To be be able to see in you what is possible that Mm. you fail to see in yourself and to work to call you to provide opportunities that, that allow you to reach your highest good. Oh, I love that. I love that. It's like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' a sense of double consciousness, like say there's a love consciousness or something, right? There's a yes, love yes. causes us to see through that third eye. I love that. And every group has had it. Yeah. I know I've talked a lot about white supremacists, but in the American white story, there's also a stream that has trended toward love, and that's tri- that stream is with the abolitionist movement. Mm-hmm. That stream is when uh, the social gospel movement. Mm-hmm. That's, so every society has goodness in them, and it's our job. The movements are not to condemn people to hell, but to raise people up to heaven. Ooh, yes, 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 yes. And Mama Ruby, finally, when I say the words fierce love, what comes up for you? Fierce love. The ability to go all the way to the cross. The ability to put one's body self on the line. And to imagine a world that you want to have, not only for yourself, but also for others. And to be able to, to, to be willing to go all the way for that. All the way. And I'm wavering. I think of fierce love with the family hangers of the world mm-hmm. who fought to open up doors that they, that they themselves would never walk through because they didn't have the credentials to do it. But they were opening doors not for themselves but for generations. And they were willing to go all the way to open doors that they themselves would never walk in because they thought that 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 would benefit the race. Well, this is Ruby Nell Sales, (laughs) y'all. Ruby, thank you so much. I love you. Love you too, Jackie. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay, honey. Thanks for listening to this episode of Love Period, a special series we put together for Black History Month. As an African-American woman who grew up in this nation, I think about the poet James Weldon Johnson, who says about my people, we have come over a way that with tears has been watered. I think about the tears of my ancestors watering the soil of America, tears baptizing my hope, tears that are often tears of joy because we've learned how to make a way out of no way. Black history, Black heritage, it's everyone's history. These stories belong to all of us. And I hope because you've listened to these episodes, you feel connected and that you'll dig and do some research about Black folks in America.